This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. Its delightful call includes a variety of rich organ and bell-like notes. Community or chaos, we can construct and nurture community or fall into chaos. Over the next hour, Marvin Hubbard hosts conversations toward creating a fairer, more equal society. Community or Chaos is made possible with the support of Quakers Aotearoa. You'll find them online at quaker.org.nz. Good morning, friends. Today we have with us Bob Lloyd, is a physicist, and had a long interest in uh, climate change and in environmental overshoot and the connection between economic growth and climate change. You can podcast this by going to oar.org.nz, then going to podcasting, going to Community of Chaos. Welcome, Bob. Thanks very much, Dougald. I, I've been here before, but uh, it's a different venue. <laughs> Bob, is global heating or climate change our main problem? So that if we can just slow down climate change, we're all right. And the problem is, or is the problem more complicated and bigger than climate change? Well, climate change is certainly a big problem as people in the North Island and uh, even us in Dunedin here notice with all the wind and the weather events that we've had. UK is being flooded at the moment. Forest fires in Australia just finished in Canada. It's really, really causing some serious damage now. But I don't consider climate change as being the problem. Humanity's main problem, in my opinion, is that we insist upon never-ending economic growth. And economic growth requires energy. And at the moment, most of our energy supply is from fossil fuels. Therefore, if we want uh, economic growth, we have to increase emissions. And that's been happening now for for the past one or two hundred years, ever since we discovered oil and gas. In addition, we also have an increasing population. This is something that a lot of people don't want to talk about when they talk about growth. It's okay to say we don't want economic growth, but to say we don't want population growth is, is sometimes thought to be wrong. In fact, there's a lot of, lot of propaganda going around the, the web at the moment saying that uh, the globalists who want to try and stabilise the population, the Club of Rome people, are trying to kill people. And anyone who thinks that we should decrease our population are murderers. <laughs> so we, we've got a problem there. Okay, can we go into that a bit? I've noticed that uh, Italy and Spain, which are both Catholic countries, until very recently uh, it was part of their culture to have more children yet they're actually depopulating quite rapidly. They're worried about it. Now, I think it's a good thing, but you probably need to do things with your economy and society when that happens, not to increase population, but to deal with who's going to look after old people (laughs) and things like that. And most countries, when people particularly women get health care and education, the population goes down rather rapidly. Um, 
Yes, this is this is true. Um, but a lot of the countries who have decreasing population have now got a, an outcry from the economists saying we've got to increase it, either by more births or quite often by increasing immigration. Well, immigration is one thing. I mean, the, the people are there. But as far as more births, that hasn't worked. Nobody, I mean, nobody in Japan's taking up more births. In China, they tried to turn around. Now, that's a fool's errand. I mean, it's foolish, not no, no, bad you're, for the environment, right, but uh, also it doesn't Marvin. work. But overall, the world population is still increasing. And so they while say some of the European years, countries are going down, the Middle East, um, Africa are going up still they, quite rapidly. They say that they're demographically, they say in 20 years' time, it will go, yeah, it'll be noticeably going down. Maybe or maybe not. There are some projections which have it going up till the end of uh, end of this century. But at the moment, we're getting around about sixty million people extra every year. Yeah, that's ten times, ten, twelve times New Zealand's population every year. Well, the probably the best way to deal with that is more economic equality and more health care and education. Yes, you're right, but unfortunately, as we'll deal in a bit later, increasing equality is actually going to make climate change worse because more equality, that is more the poor people um, living better, means more emissions. It depends on what you mean by living better, of course. Of course. Living better according to the propagandists who say that they must have more and more money. That's uh, That's what I'm referring to, not living better as in enjoying life better. But coming back to climate change in terms of whether it's a difficult problem or not, slowing down climate change, which is what you asked asked me to to talk on, has become very, very difficult at the moment because it's likely that we pass known tipping points. A tipping point is a point in time when things get out of control because feedback effects then take over and mean that even if we reduce emissions, humans reduce their emissions – the emissions into the atmosphere causing the concentration of CO2 to increase doesn't go down. A good example of that is forest fires. Because temperatures have been increasing, it leads to more forest fires, and more forest fires puts more CO2 into the atmosphere. Other ones are methane and uh, melting of ice. Once you get past these points, then it becomes very, very difficult Once upon a time, it was thought that 350 parts per million of CO2 in the atmosphere was the critical tipping point. This was suggested by U.S. scientist Jim Hansen. He's the one who talked to U.S. Congress in the 1980s. And it's where the climate group 350.org get its name. But we actually breached that level in the atmosphere around 1988. Then the world decided that 450 parts per million of all greenhouse gases in the atmosphere was the tipping point. By all gases, I mean including methane and nitrous oxide, etc. But that was breached in the 1990s. Then at the last, um, not the last, um, at the Paris COP meeting, 1.5 degrees was taken at the tipping point. That is, Um, 1.5 above pre-industrial times, but we're already at 1.2. In fact, this this last year, we might might actually even exceed 1.5 degrees. 
It's highly likely because a lot of the heat is stored in the world's oceans that a a further 0.3 or 0.6 degrees of temperature is actually locked in. That is, we can't go back. So we're up to around about 1.5 to 1.6 degrees locked in. Then we have a very ticklish problem. We have a problem because the temperature has actually remained lower than it should be with those concentrations. And the reason for that is atmospheric particulates. Jim Hansen has, has written quite recently on the, on the particulate problem, the sulfates, parts of, of the, the smoke and uh, aerosols from aeroplanes. It decreases the temperature rise. If we start cleaning up the environment, we're actually going to increase the temperature even more by about 2 or th- 0.2 or 0.3 degrees. So that's a really, really difficult problem to solve. Have you been? Is this part of environmental overshoot or that? Absolutely, I'll, I'll mention that in a minute. But in terms of growth, Danella Meadows, the U.S. lead author of the 1972 Clubber Rome report, "The Limits to Growth," suggested that problems with complex systems we need to find the main leverage points. Now, clearly, emissions into the atmosphere is one leverage point, but it might not be the crucial leverage point. The crucial leverage points are the ones that we really need to get to because the lower-level leverage points people tend to ignore. With growth at the main leverage points, the problem is much bigger and complicated than just climate change. We've built a civilization that needs to supply the world with food, clothing, health care, all these different things based upon never-ending economic growth. Once growth starts to decline, then it becomes difficult to feed people, it becomes difficult to transport the food around, it becomes difficult to maintain the healthcare systems, it becomes very tricky. We also have another, a number of geopolitical conflicts going wrong on the world at the moment. There's two wars, two serious wars happening at this very time, and to feed the wars, to supply the wars with weapons and munitions, we need economic growth. Also the problem with wars is it tends to destroy things. If you look at the pictures in the newspapers or the TV on on Gaza at the moment, you'll see the destruction caused. And at a point where we're we're struggling with climate change, we're destroying large cities which are going to need rebuilding to house people. So, you know, it becomes very, very tricky. All right. The, it seems one of the things I've read, and I'm not sure this is quite correct, we're using a lot more alternative energy uh, for, for electricity, non-carbon. But at the same time, because of economic material growth, we're still increasing our carbon use at the same time as, we're, as we have more alternative non-carbon sources for energy. Would that be correct? No, that's correct. Uh, uh, The absolute amount of renewable energy is going up at quite a rapid rate. But because we have growth on top of that, growth of energy... The growth is actually growing faster than than the... the renewable uptake. That's right. So the percentage is staying roughly the same. 
The other problem with um, with a growth problem in in terms of leverage points. Remember, I, I mentioned that um, there are a different way of describing leverage points. There are uh, low level ones like emissions into the atmosphere, and then there's higher ones such as economic growth. the The problem is is that um, with growth, we are likely to run into energy shortages, and that's going to happen very soon. Danilla once said that when she does find main leverage points in terms of a complex problem, that people just won't believe her. That is because they've been um, taught to believe that economic growth is good. And so they move in the opposite direction of what she Mm. wanted them to do, that is to go into Mm. less growth. They move into more growth. When Naomi Klein said about climate change that the it couldn't have happened at a worse time at the height of neoliberalism. Well, it's because neoliberalism is one of the main feedback effects and one of the main um, critical leverage points going in the wrong direction. Neoliberalism has increased economic growth. And it's, it's not only increased economic growth, but it's, it's also produced a propaganda system which makes it very difficult for anyone to think outside of neoliberalism. One of the problems I see with neoliberalism is that uh, we need a globalism of a certain kind like the United Nations, like world cooperation. But unfortunately, uh, neoliberalism for a long time, and I think it's still true, uh, captured globalism. Oh, absolutely. And so you had a reaction against globalism, which really was a reaction against the inequality and unjustness of neoliberalism. Well, I'm not sure what what you mean by globalism because... I'm um, talking about uh, things like the United Nations rule of law. You mean peace and cooperation? Yeah. Yeah, no, certainly. um, Neoliberalism is focused entirely upon uh, economic growth and achieving wealth for the wealthy class. But it got confused with... um, World order. No, no. It in fact uh, it formed a marriage with world order okay. because the world order is uh, has been for a long time the American world order, which the has the Washington consensus. The Washington consensus. That's right. But hasn't that actually, in a way, defamed um, the idea of global cooperation? Oh, absolutely. Um, uh, it's changed global cooperation and equality into. Uh, cooperation of the few for the few, the wealthy few. While we're talking about overshooting and how different, do you ever read science fiction? Yes, I do. In fact, um, uh, science fiction is a good way of looking at the future because um, the way humans act are, are unpredictable. You can't predict what they're going to do in the future. So uh, when you do climate modelling, for instance, you can predict what the temperature will be if the emissions increase by a certain amount. That's a scientific modelling. But you can't predict what humans will do in terms of emissions. So the UN, the IPCC, when it does its modelling, it has scenarios. So the scenarios are business as usual or drastic reduction or increased reduction. Um, Fiction, science fiction, can be one way of ascertaining the future from various random points of view. 
and you know the the famous ones are 1984 Brave New World, um, Fahrenheit 451. The predictions of how society might end up in the future, and some of them, unfortunately, are coming true. You ever read Ken Stanley Robinson? He wrote this good book called Ministry of the Future. No, I think I have heard of it, but I haven't read that one. And uh, he and others have talked about geoengineering, like trying to, for instance, stop the ice from melting by withdrawing the water from the bottom and throwing it on top, and also maybe using seawater in high altitude to um, cool down things temporarily. Is that that kind of thing... It's not going to solve the problem because the problem is growth and the overabundant, uncontrolled growth. Now, you've answered my question then, <laughs> Marvin. I, I, I can't say more, but um, geoengineering is very, very dodgy. If you look at the energy required for most geoengineering, it would require a lot more emissions to, to put in the energy for the geoengineering um, and it would actually increase emissions. The, the best geoengineering we can do in terms of um, reducing emissions is, is not to emit the carbon in the first place. Once you mix it with all the, the oxygen and the nitrogen in the atmosphere, it becomes tricky to remove it. Or you could do the ones you say you could, you know, there are, there are plans to, to put mirrors in space, to, um, to paint everyone's house roof uh, white, so it reflects. There's all sorts of ones, but if you do um, serious modelling in terms of the energy required to reduce the emissions, it it never ends up well. So you were talking about uh, overshoot. Do you you want me to go on to that? Sure, if you like. Um, Overshoot means we reach the point where we use more of the Earth's resources than are being provided in a sustainable manner. One of the first people to look at this was a fellow called William Catton. William Catton wrote a book called Overshoot back in um, 1970. William Catton, I had an interesting story about William Catton because um, I was reading William Catton's book Overshoot in my office at the university one day when one of our students walked in and his name was William Catton. And I thought, oh, I'm reading a book by someone who's got the same name as you. And he looked at me and said... That's not surprising at all. He's my grandfather. <laughs> so his father was a, was a professor. Was a, yeah, I'm not sure whether he's still there, professor of philosophy at uh, uh, University of Canterbury. But he thought we'd gone into overshoot back in the 1970s. Once we've entered overshoot, that becomes very difficult to get back on a sustainable path. And here I might mention uh, Dennis Meadows. Dennis Meadows is... Danella Meadows, these are the two people who wrote the Club of Rome report, Limits to Growth, in 1972, Um, his concept of a hard problem compared to an easy problem. A hard problem is one where things have to get worse for a short time before they get better. An easy problem is when things always get better. Politicians always like easy problems because they can um, promise their electorate electorate and uh, their constituents uh, better and better lives. Isn't that usually, is not is that not usually uh, um, untrue? I mean, most things don't necessarily get better unless you do something to make rational to make them better. 
Well, it's, it's nice and it's easy if things naturally get better and better. If you uh, improve the healthcare system, then you decrease the number of lives that are lost due to, to illness. But when, when things work the other way, when, when you tell people that uh, to fight climate change, you actually are going to get less income next year, that you're going to have less holidays, that you're going to have less health care, that your houses are going to be worse off, then it becomes very tricky. Well, actually, this is one of the – I think it's just a good argument for equality. Well, it's not um, because, let because me the, the poor people have never had it good, so they want things better. And but they it depends on what you mean people. good. For instance, people talk about electric cars. Well, electric cars take batteries. Electric cars take energy to make. Absolutely. And if you have everybody in the world having electric cars, you're not solving the problem. Absolutely. But if you have enough electric trains and enough public transportation, everybody's better off. And if you make it, do it in a way where you make it clear that the people that have the most, particularly the top 10%, are the first people that should publicly lose lose some of that wealth and have to change their own lifestyle a bit like not flying. It seems to me that if you if you're gonna sell degrowth, you have to sell equality in a way that's good for the environment and is at least as costly for the top one in ten percent as it is for Ordinary people. It's it's true, but it's also very very difficult. If you if you, I, in fact I've done some calculations recently, which um, if people want to increase in increase equality, decrease inequality at the moment, it will make climate change seriously worse. If if we bring the poor population of the world up in two years' time to have the same same um, level of of uh, emissions as the average world emissions, we would completely um, – we would just go over the top in terms of climate change within five what years. What about instead of building new houses at Portobello, much larger than most people need, you, you, you rebuild older houses and build small houses and not build any large houses? In, in – in, in a rich country like New Zealand, that that's true and that's possible. But when you look at the number of displaced people and poor people who are living in tents or in living in, in severely de- degraded housing in the rest of the world, um, in rural areas, um, you, you're talking a different order of magnitude. You, you're talking, you know, se- a serious problem. We're at the moment bombing bombing people in in the Middle East to pieces. Right, <laughs> destroying their their houses, which could be re- renovated, <laughs> and and making them um, not only not only have to build new houses, but clean up the mess that's yeah. been caused. Well, you talk in a book, recent book, hundred years of insanity. Obviously, a foreign policy for the major powers are insane. Yep, that's true. <laughs> But let's get back to degrowth because that's what um, the original talk was going to be about. So I want to mention just a a bit about the history of degrowth. One of the first persons to talk about degrowth and having a 
having a society which lived sustainably was was an economist called Georgescu Rogan. He was one of the few economists in the world that actually studied physics. He he knew what entropy means. He knew the second law of thermodynamics. He knew that we couldn't go on growing forever and ever. He knew that whenever we transferred energy from high-level energy, such as electricity, to low-level energy, such as heat, we lost a lot of it. A loss of it was lost as waste heat. The other people who looked at degrowth were ecological economists, such as Herman Daly, the U.S. Um, Reserve Bank guy, um, Charlie Hall, who came up with biophysical economics. Degrowth is a bit of a, a trick word. It's not saying we're going to have less and less, you know, because you know, they, they worry that people will worry about that. People like, have been so propagandized to want more and more that to say low growth won't work. You have to say degrowth. What it means is that people move in the right direction, you know, the, according to Danella Meadows, to correctly leverage the problem, such as climate change. There's also been lots of other people talking about um, anti-economic growth, people such as Richard Heinberg, Thomas Homer Dixon, Jim Jackson, Tim Jackson, Peter Victor, Richard Douthwaite, and uh, William Catton, Bill Catton, the one I mentioned earlier. There's a real disconnect between economics and science. Very few economists know any physics today, and very few physicists attempt to comment on economics. One of the only physicists, stroke chemists, who ever seriously got into economics was a British guy called Frederick Soddy back in the 1920s. He wrote a number of book on, books on economics and why economic growth was, would not never work. He was one of the few physicists come scientists to criticise economists. That's really ironic because uh, modern, for the last hundred years or maybe more, economics has modelled itself on numbers and numeral and on a pretended to be a science because science is well, science is seen as true and factual and and they believe their economic ideology is true and factual, and they call economics a science. What's the, what's the name of the guy? I'm trying to think. The, Philip Morelsky. Philip Morelsky is one of the best critiques I know of of um, of uh, why why economics is such a poor pseudo science. Well, the word pseudo is correct. <laughs> he also is one of the main critics of neoliberalism. Um, his book, uh, The Road from Mont Pelerin. Mont Pelerin was the place where the where where um, neoliberalism started in Europe in the <laughs> that was in the nineteen forties, and they were acting against the success of the welfare state in Scandinavia and Northern Europe and even Great Britain, and they were terrified that a mixed economy and the welfare state would be popular. Absolutely, and they conspired for 40 years, from 1940, 46 until 1980s, to, to make it come true. 
And in, they, they in places a, like Chile, they helped the addict. They sent their um, breedmen to Chile to help uh, the dictatorship uh, absolutely. try the experiment. Friedman and Hayek were were two of the main um, main leaders of the neoliberal movement back in the European days, and they transferred that to the University of Chicago. And the University of Chicago, to this day, is one of the main centers of neoliberal economics. Fortunately, Chile didn't buy it long term, <laughs> unlike Russia. Yeah, well, most of the world has, has bought some some form of neoliberal economics now, including even China. So, how do you encourage um, degrowth? How do we encourage degrowth? I'm not sure. Um, I, I really not. Um, getting the word out. You, you mentioned I've written a book on the subject, um, 100 Years of Insanity. I, I don't see a, a clear way forward at the moment, um, mostly, mostly because we've just gone too far. You know, in terms of environmental tipping points, once you reach the point of, of no return, it's like pulling the trigger on a gun. You can't go back. So even if you enlighten people, you're not going to solve the environmental problem. You may help them to survive better and you may help them to, to not repeat the mistake again in the future. But uh, in terms of the physical problem of, of climate change, it's going to be very, very okay. difficult to reverse at this stage. Okay, I think we might have a piece of music now. Yep, that sounds good. And then we um, go back. Then we can go back. A crack fills the earth like a single rifle shot But no one's there to hear the beginning of the end of the world A crack spreads through ice like an axe through dry wood It opens up a chasm between what is happening And what shouldn't Cause if the ice shelf will tumble Into the warming sea And the oceans they may rise Until they cover the dreams of you and me Oceanic disruption on the planet's warming surface. The greenhouse is calling, the greenhouse is warming. The earth has given notice, she has given her final warning. One thing we must do is to support our politicians Whenever they take steps to remedy this situation We must reduce the use of carbon We must do what must be done And meet the needs of this growing world By harvesting the wind and the sun 
Because if the ice shelf will tumble into the warming sea And the oceans, they may rise until they cover the dreams of you and me uh-huh. And no machines on earth will stop it No cunning of the scientists Oceanic disruption on the planet's warming surface Greenhouse is calling, greenhouse is warming The earth has given notice, she has given her final warning Her final warning Cause if the ice shop will tumble into the warming sea And the oceans, they may rise until they cover the dreams of you and me. Uh-huh. And no machines on earth will stop it. No cunning of the scientists. Oceanic disruption on the planet's warming surface. Greenhouse is calling. Greenhouse is warming. The earth has given notice, she has given her final warning, her final warning. That was Simon Kerr and Final Warning. We're talking with physicist Bob Lloyd about... De, the necessity for degrowth, and you can podcast this by going to oar.org.nz and then going to um, podcasting, going to community or chaos. World leaders, except for the UN Secretary General Gutierrez and Pope Francis, seem to have lost interest in global heating or climate change. Why is this the case? Yeah, I've already sort of touched upon this because the loss in interest in climate change is because our, in our society, economic growth has become a religion. It's become a religion that's um, stronger than traditional religions. It just cannot be transgressed. And to put forward degrowth, as I have been trying to do, is almost unthinkable. I wrote a paper called The Growth Delusion back in 2008. And yes, the Pope the Pope has been one of the, uh, the best supporters in the world of, of tackling climate change. He first came out with his first encyclical in 2015, and the second one came out just, just a, a week or so ago this year. In both, he made a very strong case that we had to have action on it. The pontiff, the present pontiff, has also been one of the staunchest anti-war advocates that's been around. Well, likewise, the UN Secretary-General Guterres has also been a consistent ag- advocate both for climate action and for peace. But they have an advantage because they both don't have a general population electorate to please, as do the leaders of nation states. And they don't also – they don't have to please uh, major corporations. Absolutely. That, that's exactly right because the politicians have to serve and please the – corporations so that they fund them to, to fund their election campaigns. Um, 
I think we had an example of this during the recent election. We did because indeed. Because the actually um, David Parker and the finance minister, surprisingly enough, advocated radical tax revision to help the poor and to readjust to make the taxation system more just because uh, the Inland Revenue actually publicized their statistics which showed the very richest people in New Zealand uh, pay much less than the average than the poorest people in New Zealand for taxation. And they were going to make a referendum on it and the leader of the uh, Labour Party said, no, we aren't going to deal with taxation as long as I'm prime minister. As long as, And obviously he's more frightened of business and corporation than he is of the citizens. So it right. isn't just the citizens. The, the other bit of information I thought you were going to mention is that uh, there was a letter to the editor in the Otago Daily Times recently which outlined um, the different contributions, the financial contributions to the parties, and uh, both the National and Act had uh, vastly more money coming in than uh, the Labour Party. The Green Party also had a lot of money coming in. That's interesting, actually. <laughs> okay. It seems to me that many things we might do to help mitigate climate change and decarbonize, for instance, decarbonizing our transport system by going to public transportation, electric trains, and coastal shipping might also make New Zealand more resilient and more able to cope with the changes that are coming with climate change. It seems to me that resilience demands collective action, doesn't it? You're you're absolutely right. Um, I also wrote a paper called uh, the... You know, I, I haven't mentioned um, Garrett Hardin's um, famous paper, The Tragedy of the Commons, but I wrote a, a paper called uh, The um, Commons Revisited, The Tragedy um, Continues. Um, you, you're absolutely right. Uh, the only way we can tackle climate change is by cooperation. But in terms of decarbonisation, it becomes very, very difficult. It's hard to predict the future, but resilience is important. But the main areas in terms of resilience, in terms of New Zealand's uh, adaptation to climate change, is to concentrate on food, water supply and health. Cleaning up transport is needed, but the best, best method in terms of transport is to reduce the need for transport, not to put in more transport. Things like I heard mentioned recently of a of a 350-kilometre-per-hour fast train from, from uh, Christchurch to Dunedin would be extremely expensive in terms of emissions. And why, why encourage people to commute you know, at, at such a fast rate and daily um, from Christchurch to Dunedin? What we need to do is to localise transport, to localise our food supply so we don't need to transport as much stuff. We need to stop people buying as much stuff. Um, there was an article on, on last night's news about um, online purchasing now has increased to the extent that uh, Australian Post has bought its own planes to transport stuffs from Europe and US and China to Australia, right? Having efficient transport system, even if it's re- based upon renewables, is beside the point if we 
continue to increase economic growth by wanting more and more stuff and more and more things like tourism. You know, we want to stop that. We want to encourage people to cycle, to walk around, to make their food supply local and not import tomatoes and and, um, uh, pineapples from Queensland. I agree with you to a certain extent, but we also need public transport. Not everybody can ride a bicycle. And we need to encourage some people to use the public transport. I, I use public transport. I live out on the peninsula. Usually, my wife and myself are the only people on the bus. The bus goes all the way from the bus hub right out to Harrington Point, right <laughs> back again, and it has two or three people on it. In this case, it's a diesel bus. But even if we put electric buses on it, having a, a such a large thing going up and down with so few people is 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 energy crazy. You might say might say something about the people who live out there. I think, and the, well, for instance, Normanby bus is often quite full. Now that you're, you're entirely right, there's very few people and, live out there, so why have and the a people, diesel bus? And the people in Moscow are much more likely. I think it's not only the number of people who live out there, but also the the people out there all can afford to have two or three cars, and they prefer it's more convenient, and they prefer to use them. No, no, you're, you're right. Um, you know, Europe has a lot better and more and faster public transport system than, than uh, New Zealand, but also has a much higher population density. So you, you're right. Public transport would be useful, but that's not the critical leverage point. The critical leverage point is growth. And if we get growth down, it means less need for transport. Yeah. So then the, the bits that we do need, the critical points, things such as buses to the to the hospital, ambulances and so on, can be dealt with efficiently using renewable transport. It's but unless we stop economic growth on a world basis, Band-Aid problems in New Zealand are just not going to cut the deal. Well, it seems to me that what we, a lot of things we might do for carbon will actually help us survive climate change in New Zealand. Well, I've already mentioned that that may not be true because um, improving the transport system, in fact... Well, it depends on what you do. Well, at the moment, what we're doing is trying to clean up the emissions from shipping and uh, motor vehicles, and that's decreasing the amount of particulates in the atmosphere, and that is actually increasing climate change over the next decade or so. So we've got... You know, we've got a serious problem here. It's, it's not. It's not. I, I, I don't like people who want band aid solutions. People mostly want to live their lives well. That is, have electric cars to go around it, have their same oh. level of of transport that they well, enjoy. We just with talked cars, about electric cars, but not and they're not the answer. But it doesn't mean you that uh, trains aren't better than cars. I mean. Uh-huh. And if, if we provide public transport system for eight billion people in the world, we'll have uh, an ecological disaster. Okay. And we're talking about, I mean, we can't decide what happens in the rest of the world. We can only decide what happens in New Zealand. Yes, I know. But because climate change is a cooperative problem, right, it can only be solved if all countries cooperate. 
any one, you know, the, the one of the main points that Garrett Hardin made in his tragedy of the Commons paper back in the 1980s was that if if single individual people actually don't have children, right? So if, if two people do the right thing, they don't have any children because they don't want population to increase, they will actually make the problem worse because the fecund among us, the people who like having lots of children, will continue to outpopulate those good people amongst us who have less children. That sounds like classism to me. <laughs> it may be, but it's... And it's actually in England there's a movement among the aristocracy to have more children because... They say it's better for the human race. <laughs> and I, I won't go there. <laughs> okay. Um, next question. <laughs> <laughs> well, how do we convince people in New Zealand that we should stop growth and still have a, a civil community, a civil life? I, I haven't got an answer there. I, I, I cannot give an answer because the, the last election showed that they want to move in the opposite direction. They want more growth. We had the National Party and ACT Party who wanted growth, growth, growth. We had the Labour Party who wanted growth, growth for all people. The ACT and National were mostly wanted growth for the business class, but Labour wanted growth for everyone, and the Green Party wants green growth. We had no one who, who were close to advocating degrowth. They wouldn't do it. They wouldn't get elected. They knew they wouldn't get elected, so they didn't do it. So it's only people like me who are going to shout on the radio here and ask for <laughs> degrowth and not be heard. <laughs> so there. Okay. Of course, and according to your prognosis, we'll probably have a major uh, economic crash because of the environment and other systems and also the possibility of war. Um, if the, Now, you want to talk about this for a minute since we don't seem to be able to see, you don't see a way forward for voluntary degrowth. No. Um, you, you've, you, you've asked the question, is planned degrowth to be preferred over, over a catastrophe, over collapse? Um, of course, you know, it'd be nice to plan uh, a, a way forward. But once you get past a point of no return, um, it's, it's difficult. It's difficult to, to give a planned way forward. Um, economic collapse has been talked about by a number of people. The two most famous people are um, Joseph Tainter. Back in 1988, he wrote a book, Collapse How Societies, sorry, um, Collapse of Complex Societies, which suggested that all societies, this is historical societies, this is the Roman Empire, etc., um, once they get to a critical stage of complexity, will have to collapse. Um, the other one was Jared Diamond, who wrote uh, a book in um, 2005, uh, How Societies Choose or Fail to Collapse fail to survive, again suggesting that, that most historically, most societies, once they become too complex, they crash. And so it's, it's on the cards. In fact, there are some people day, today predicting that collapse is probably the best way forward because it gives us a chance to regroup and move forward in a better direction. 
Um, certainly, economic collapse is, is on the cards. The, the debt system in the world is extraordinary. Um, it's just going to be very difficult to continue to provide more and more people with more and more stuff, with the environment, the economy, with lack of resources. You know, electric cars need heavy metals, need um, minerals. Mm-hmm. Even if we put in a renewable energy system, um, I wrote a paper suggesting we'll run out of copper, we'll run out of silver first. There are other metals and critical things which we'll just run out of. The insanity of never-ending economic growth is just just mind-boggling. Well, it's a matter of choice, partially. I mean, choosing cars over, say, an electric train using uh, electric energy, not batteries, is a lot. uses a lot less Ah, but energy. the choice not to travel by car at all is a better choice. It's, yeah, but how many one. people are making it? And how many people, for instance, won't visit their family in Australia? I'm not saying it's it's um, going to happen. What I'm saying is the right choice. If we try and allow a society to to have transport and tourism and the things well, to visit the difference their between family tourism and, and visiting trans- their family, There's is there? A, well, um, I actually I made that both. choice myself. <laughs> Unfortunately, um, I'm not going back to America. But I understand people make a different choice. But what I'm saying is that tourism and being able to get on a train to the north to to Picton is different than getting on a thinking I can go to Europe every five years. Yes, but if you apply your your level of use of of energy and multiply by eight billion people, it's not going to work. That's that's the problem. Okay. Ninety 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 seven somewhere between seventy and ninety percent of the population doesn't have don't have the choice of oh, of travelling even relatively short distances due to lack of income and lack of money and lack of resources. Um, if we in New Zealand want to to keep even a, a modest level of transport alive and say that that should be applied to the rest of the world, we're in deep trouble. And, and as we both agreed, the, it, once we pass tipping points, then why bother? You, you, um, you, you in fact, asked the question, um, once we put pass the point of no return – don't we have an ethical obligation to continue the effort? And I say no. Once we pass the point of no return, our ethical obligation is to try and help as many people survive as possible. Garrett Harden posed a, a problem called the lifeboat problem. Right? Remember Garrett Harden is the tragedy of the commons fellow, but he also posited a lifeboat problem. And the lifeboat problem is a, is a big, big ship which sinks, big passenger ship, and um, has not enough lifeboats. And the lifeboats go out and the first-class passengers get on board and all the, the second-class and third-class passengers are splashing around in the sea wanting to get on board. And the choice is, do you let them on board and the lifeboat drowns as well or do you hmm. fend them off and uh, try and save the few people? I, I've got 
I don't know. I've got a question. Yep. If you were on a boat and the captain of the boat hadn't put in life jackets and you had your a, a small family and maybe just a small yep. group of people and the boat sank and you were inside of an island, but it was so far away that you believed you couldn't um, couldn't reach it. Would you better? Would you encourage your people to keep swimming until they drown, or just say, "Let's drown now because we're never going to make it"? And you're not really—you don't know. You know by ninety percent, you're probably right, but maybe there's one percent that you're wrong. Well, the, the problem with the lifeboat problem is that it doesn't have an ethically nice solution. Um, if the island's a bit further away and they can't get to it unless they've got a lifeboat, then you've really got the choice of do you save some people yeah. or save everyone. There's no ethically nice answer. The correct way of solving the problem is not to let the boat sink. But once the boat's sink, sinking, then you've got that ethical problem. Once we pass the climate change tipping point, then we are very close to being in the situation okay. whereby we've got no no solution. Okay, well, I guess I'm, I still believe that, that many of the things we can do, and I'm not talking about electric cars now, but trains, public transport, uh, farming. I mean, the, many of the things we buy for food Overseas, we could we could grow all our own grain in New Zealand. No we, disagreement there whatsoever. As I said, we could food uh, we could even grow our own bananas. Well, we might be able to once it warms up enough. No, we can do it now. Can we? Okay, but we don't because it's not part of the Pantera. Yeah. <clears throat> the other point I'd like to make is that uh, maybe people in cities like New York will die off faster than people in Africa. Because of, once a city reaches a certain size and density, if cities, if things collapse, they may be in worse shape than the, some of the poorest people in the world. But the other thing that we have to consider is that many of the things we can do in New Zealand that will decarbonize and we should do also will also make us more resilient for the future. I mean... Trying to do, be resilient is not wrong. No disagreement whatsoever. And also, Richard Heinberg, who runs Resilient, we should be thinking about how we people. keep knowledge. I think when I think the clouds won't save knowledge. I, I can remember sitting with Richard Heinberg in one of the peak oil meetings I went to, and we both decided that um, economic collapse was and collapse of society was inevitable. And that the one thing we should do is save knowledge, save books. Yeah. And, and um, you know, uh, uh, one of the big problems today is a lot of books and, and information is stored electronically. Well, that may not be available. We've got well, to start. That may collapse. We, we, we must start saving libraries. We must start <laughs> um, engraving the critical information on platinum, <laughs> <laughs> platinum uh, sheets Something which is not going to deteriorate over the well, long term. Books, if they're cared for, the last them along. The Ar oh, Ireland was a famous for saving centuries to millennium uh, here. <laughs> and you can once you get a book, of course, you can copy it. 
Well, no, you have to have a photocopier. No, you can copy it by hand. Copy it by hand. Well, that, that, that happens. And um, unfortunately, it gets changed a little bit along the way. Sure. <laughs> but, you know, we've been through that before. The yes, dark of When Rome fell, they saved knowledge. Yes, but no, you're quite right. Um, resilience, food, water, um, housing, books, I'm all for saving. Is there a hopeful way of talking about? Well, one thing which I haven't emphasized probably as much as I should is the the role of peace in determining how we act. Because if if humans keep going to war at the rate they're going at, at the moment, our tension is completely taken away from climate change. And and not only that, um, the, as I said, the resources needed to fund and keep a war going in terms of music, munitions and em- emissions okay. is just so great that, that people would give up. That's a good place change. to stop and say if we're really serious about climate change, Become peaceful. we will uh, stop funding the military and use our resources more productively. Absolutely. Let's okay. stop there. Thanks a lot, Bob. Thanks very much, uh, Marvin, for letting me <laughs> yell my head off about degrowth. Okay. Uh, I know it won't get anywhere, but, you know, Thanks one of the for things we can do board. is just keep trying. <laughs> Thanks. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.